0: How certain can I be that I'm actually sitting at my desk as it would seem that I am? I see my desk before me and I feel it beneath my arms, and yet, how can I prove that my senses are to be trusted? How can I know for sure that I'm not merely a brain in a vat, being fed fake perceptual stimuli that only makes it seem like I'm a human being recording a podcast? A philosopher of epistemology who subscribes to radical skepticism may tell me that I can't know for sure, but this hypothesis raises its own questions. Dr. Duncan Pritchard's recent book with Princeton University Press, called Epistemic Angst, Radical Skepticism, and the Groundlessness of Our Believing, offers a completely new solution to this ancient philosophical problem that includes a new reading of Ludwig Wittgenstein's account of the structure of rational evaluation. Dr. Pritchard is a professor of philosophy at the University of Edinburgh, where he is the director of Aden, the Edinburgh Center for Epistemology, Mind, and Normativity. In 2007, he was awarded the Philip Leverhulme Prize, and in 2011, he was elected to a fellowship of the Royal Society of Edinburgh. He joins me today to talk about his latest book.
1: Hello, my name is Carrie Lynn Evans and you're listening to New Books in Secularism. The great thing about our channel is the broad range of topics we're able to cover. Clearly, we usually deal with topics somehow related to religion and inquiries into the validity of those beliefs. The word secularism usually refers to civic or institutional organizations that remain a-religious, but we also sometimes stray further afield into a wide range of disciplines. I remember one episode in which the concept of infinity was explored from the perspective of abstract mathematics, for example, and today we're going to be getting into some rather abstract philosophy, epistemology, and the problem of radical skepticism, to be uh, precise. So, without further ado, philosopher Duncan Pritchard is with me to talk about his new book, Epistemic Angst, Radical Skepticism, and the Groundlessness of Our Believing. Duncan, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Hi, Kerry. Before we get into the book, let's start with asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to work in your field. Um,
2: I, I guess like a lot of people who, uh, who do philosophy, I, I came into it by chance. I just happened to do an undergraduate course in it. And um, in fact, actually on the topic of skepticism, which is the topic of the book. And uh, that got me hooked and I ended up specializing in it. And, and I realized actually that i um, Although I, I didn't know any—I mean, I didn't know what philosophy was—I didn't know anyone who who did philosophy. But I, I came to realise that a lot of the questions that I'd been asking uh, for a lot of my life had been uh, philosophical questions. So uh, it was—I'm uh, very lucky that I'm able to uh, to do this for a living. And uh, yeah, so then, as I say, I specialised, and you know, like an academic does, I did a PhD in it, and and uh, and now I'm very fortunate to be an academic who who works in that field.
1: Wonderful. So next, we generally like to ask our authors to give us a sense of the background of the book, and I think you've mentioned before that uh, yours began as a series of lectures you delivered in Taipei.
2: Yes, that's right. So these are, it's an annual lecture series called the Suchar Lectures in Philosophy, and uh, I was very lucky to be asked to, to, to give them, and uh, it's funny how it, how it worked out because um, I normally when I give lectures, I don't write up the lectures beforehand, I just write up the uh, you know handouts and powerpoints and that kind of thing, and I, I write up the lectures afterwards. but um, it, it turned out I hadn't read the small print that uh, the, uh, the lectures are simultaneously screened in, in Chinese, so because a, a lot of people there are, are Chinese speakers, that's their native language. So um, I would the idea was I had to send my text in advance so someone could translate them, so the translation would appear above uh, my head as I was speaking so. I had to get the lectures written up very quickly. Um, so, yeah, so that's why the, the book came, came together a lot much quicker than most books do, uh, because uh, it, it, I had to get these lectures written down in longhand. Um, but, um, but the, the background to the book is, um, as I say, I, I got into philosophy through the problem of, of radical skepticism. It's something that's always intrigued me. And uh, for years, um, although I've gone off and, and worked on other things, I just keep coming back to this problem it seemed to me that uh, it was a problem that people uh, hadn't properly dealt with and um and I and I and I felt that my own previous responses to it weren't quite right and so it's something I've been struggling with um you know for a long time uh, uh let's think almost 20 years I guess so the book is a fruition fruition really of uh, of 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 lots of my my thinking about about this topic and the great thing about the lectures was that it, it you know, I said I was going to lecture on skepticism. They needed the they needed the lecture, so I had to I had to work out very quickly. Well, uh, you know, what do I really think about these issues? And um, and I I like to think of the book actually as being um. You know, this doesn't happen often in philosophy, but uh, it, it sort of feels like my considered view on the matter. I mean, normally in philosophy, everything feels kind of provisional, uh, but I, I kind of feel this is you know. I feel like I've come to a sort of settled conclusion about at least one aspect of the skeptical problem at any rate.
1: Okay. So I'll admit, um, this is very challenging material, I think. Uh, That's why I want to begin with defining some terms, uh, because your book does um, seem to be written towards a readership that has some familiarity with uh, these ideas as they've developed in the past. And so before we uh, even get into the uh, book itself, can you tell us a little bit about the field of epistemology within philosophy, as well as precisely what you're referring to when you talk about radical skepticism? Uh, skepticism about what exactly, for example?
2: Okay, so um, epistemology is about the, uh, it, sometimes just called the theory of knowledge, because that's sort of the central notion in epistemology. Um, but it's um it's it's knowledge and, and cognate notions so truth rationality understanding explanation all the different ways in which we might get to the truth that's basically what ties together these epistemological topics um now skepticism is uh is, I mean, more, in its most general form is just skepticism about uh, whether we have actually got a grasp on the truth so you know, you might be uh, skeptical about a whole class of beliefs. In fact, this is how we use it in ordinary ordinary language. So, you know, we talk about climate change, skepticism. Well, that's people who are skeptical about climate change. They think, you know, there's some people who believe that it's man-made and some people who are skeptical about that. They don't think, they don't think, uh, they're skeptical. They might not think that it's false, necessary. To be skeptical is to, is to doubt whether it's true. Um, now, wh- when I talk about radical skepticism, I have in mind a, uh, as the name suggests, uh, a more extreme version of skepticism, and this is the idea that maybe we don't know anything. Maybe skepticism about everything, basically. Uh, how is it even possible for us to have knowledge? And uh, radical skepticism has a kind of rich philosophical history. There's been lots of arguments. I um, mean, the general problem of skepticism it goes right back to the ancients. It goes right back to the inception of philosophy in the ancient world. Uh, but you find these arguments appearing again and again. And they, they come to, um, they, they gain new impetus actually in the, the early modern period with people like Descartes who put forward new radical skeptical arguments. And in fact, this new radical skepticism, is, it it's arguably was a driver for a, for a lot of the, the scientific developments that came around that time. Uh, it's by doubting uh, our existing methods that we come to acquire better methods. So someone like Descartes, for example, he's not a skeptic. It advances skeptical arguments, but as a means of, of responding to them. And this is the, the idea that skeptical arguments in their in their best form, they're ways of sort of testing a the theory of knowledge. You, you you subject your theory of knowledge to the harshest test it could possibly sustain. That's the radical skeptical challenge. And if all goes well, it, it passes the test, and then uh, we can be assured that we really do have the knowledge we take ourselves to have. The big problem, however, is that a lot of people, Descartes and, included they they were very good at posing these radical skeptical problems but not so good at responding to them so what we have after the fact is um you know these arguments that are still there which seem to show that we can't know anything and that was that was what got me into philosophy is these radical skeptical arguments they're kind of intriguing um on the face of it they do seem to demonstrate that knowledge isn't possible and and that's paradoxical because of course Well, we obviously do know lots of things, you know. I mean, uh, right now I know that I'm talking to you. I know I'm sitting here. I know I'm drinking a cup of tea and so forth. Um, How can it be that such obvious examples of knowledge could be unavailable, that could be impossible? And so that's what I wanted to get my head around, and that's, that's really what the book is about.
1: Okay. So in your first chapter, you take us through the line of epistemological logic of the closure principle, uh, so, please explain for us what that means and how that produces a paradox, which you've already kind of alluded to, and the sorts of responses that have been proposed.
2: Okay, so what I, I'll perhaps say first what I what I mean by paradox. So, I, I take a paradox to be um, a set of claims which uh, arise out of our own natural ways of thinking. So, we have a bunch of claims, and for each one of them, we can say, "Well, this is just our natural way of thinking." In this case, about knowledge, our natural ways of thinking about knowledge generate this claim, they generate that claim, they generate this claim, and so on. And then each of the claims by themselves look innocuous. But then when we put them all together, we realize they're inconsistent. They can't all be true. And that's a paradox, because the reason why it's a paradox is, well, it seems then we have to get rid of one of them. Uh, But if these are naturally arising claims, they're just natural thoughts to have, then it seems that the only way to respond to the paradox is by denying something that we don't want to deny, rejecting something obvious. And that, that's exactly what we seem to have with this, uh, this skeptical paradox. We There's a bunch of claims that we can come up with, which on the face of it, they just look really obviously true. And yet they can't all be true. Now, the, the particular skeptical paradox that turns on what we call the closure principle is very simple. It's only got three claims in it. The first claim is just that we know lots of things. Right. That just seems obvious, as I mentioned a moment ago. There's lots of things I feel like I know right now. I know that uh, I've got hands. I know that there's a computer here. I know that I'm drinking tea and so forth. So that seems an obvious thing. The second claim is that the, there are certain kinds of things that I can't possibly know. So I can't possibly know, for example, um, that I'm not a brain in a vat. So a, a brain in a vat, this is just a skeptical scenario. So uh, we had imagine scenarios where Everything is as, as, exactly as we think it is, but where well, we're radically mistaken. So uh, the, for the brain in the vat case, there's lots of scenarios of this kind, but the famous one is the brain in the vat case, so I'll give you that. It's a bit like the film The Matrix, if you've seen that. Um, you know, Imagine that there's people going around, they're harvesting people's brains. We don't need to worry about why. And they're popping those I brains into, into like vats of nutrients, and they're feeding them experiences, fake experiences. So the, the, the people in the VAT, they think that everything is just the way that we think it is. You know, They think they're walking around the world. They're thinking they're drinking tea. They're thinking they've got hands. They're thinking that they're using computers and so on. In fact, it's all fake. The thing is, of course, that our experiences right now are indistinguishable from the experiences of the, the brain in the VAT. And given that that's the case, it seems we can't possibly know that we're not brains in VATs. That just seems like something we couldn't possibly know. And more generally, these scenarios are called skeptical scenarios. They, they have the following fe- two features. You, know, you can't differentiate them. You can't distinguish them from normal life. And you're radically in error. And it seems true of all these radical skeptical scenarios that you can't know that they're false. So we've got two claims. You know lots of things, but you can't know the denials of skeptical hypothesis. Now, those two claims by itself don't get you skepticism because you might think, well, so what? There's lots of things I know, and then there's some these arcane things. The, the skeptical hypotheses. I can't know that they're false. So you might think, well, so what? There's no reason why the two things might be in tension with one another. But closure, the closure principle is a way of bringing them into tension. Closure, again, is. it seems like a really innocuous principle. It just says, look, if you know one thing and you know it entails something else, then you know that's something else. So, you know, if I know that I've got two hands, well, I know that if I've got two hands and I've got one hand, right? Because if you've got two hands, you've got one hand. So it follows, I know I've got one hand. you know, Or if I know that Paris is the capital of France, and I know Paris is the capital of France, then Madrid is not the capital of France, well, then I know that Madrid is not the capital of France, and so on. If you know one thing, you know it entails something else, you know what's entailed. The problem is that closure looks, once you bring closure into play, then you can create a tension between the fact that we, on the one hand, seem to know lots of things, but on the other hand, we can't know the denials of skeptical hypotheses. After all, if I did know, for example, that I've got two hands, well, then I I would be able to know that I'm not a brain in a vat. After all, brains in vats don't have hands. So if I knew that I got hands, then I'd know that I'm not a brain in a vat that lacked hands. Or conversely, if I can't know that I'm not a brain in a vat, well, then I can't know that I've got hands. And and indeed, just about anything you think you know right now is going to be inconsistent with some skeptical hypotheses or other. So it seems like with closure in play, you don't know anything you think you know. You, you might think you know you've got hands. You might think you know you're using a computer. You might think you know you're drinking tea. But all these things entail that you're not the victim of a skeptical scenario. And you don't know you're not the victim of a skeptical scenario. So it seems you don't know these things. So there are three claims that make up the paradox. That we know lots of things. That we can't know the denials of skeptical hypotheses. And the closure principle. And the thought is all three of them look to be mundane claims. There doesn't seem be objectionable about any of them. And yet, with those three claims, those three claims can't all be true. One of them must be false. So either it's true that we don't know very much, or it's true that closure fails, but how could that happen? Or it's true that we do somehow know that denials of skeptical hypotheses. And it's, it's, a, it's a paradox because it's a trilemma because it seems, well, yeah, yeah. We've got to, we, have to, we have to embrace one of the horns of the trilemma, but which one do we embrace? Whichever one we embrace, it seems like we have to say something absurd. And that's the skeptical, that's at least one formulation anyway, of the radical skeptical problem.
1: Okay. Uh, So next you look at a different approach to radical skepticism, and that's referred to as the underdetermination principle, which again produces its own paradoxes. So please take us through this line of thinking and how that compares to the closure principle. So here's the
2: interesting thing. Um, uh, The the skeptical problem I just gave you is often formulated – in terms of either closure or or this other principle of determination. And and then the usual thing is to people think, well, it doesn't really matter which way you go because they're basically the same, they're ways of saying the same thing. And one of the uh, novelties of my book is to argue that actually that's a big mistake, that they look like the same thing with the subtle differences. So undetermination is just this idea that um, uh, (coughs) if you've got uh, evidence sufficient for knowing something, then it ought to be evidence that rules out any inconsistent possibility, any at least known to be inconsistent possibility. So, you know, if I can't... I mean, just take an extreme case, right? So either I've got hands or I don't have hands. right? So they, they can't both be true. So either I've got hands or I don't have hands. If I've got evidence sufficient for knowing that I've got hands, then it seems I ought to have evidence sufficient for dismissing the possibility that I don't have hands. Or, you know, if I've got Evidence sufficient for knowing that uh, Paris is the capital of France. Well, if I know full well Paris being the capital of France excludes Madrid being the capital of France, well, then I must have evidence which suffices to exclude Madrid being the capital of France. The difficulty, though, so, so undetermination looks like a really mundane principle, uh, an obvious principle. And yet when you plug it into the sceptical, when you plug sceptical scenarios into it, by like the brain in that vat scenario, then it generates all kinds of difficulties. So, you know, right now I take myself to have evidence for, for knowing that I've got hands. But, of course, my evidence for knowing that I've got hands, it doesn't discriminate between having hands and being a brain in a vat who merely thinks they have got hands. I mean, the thought seems to be, the natural thought, that I have exactly the same evidence if I am in a vat. You know, I mean, think about what my evidence is. It's things like, well, I can feel my hands, I can touch my hands, I can see my hands and so on. But, of course, if you're in the vat, well, you will also feel your hands and, and touch your to touch your hands and see your hands, and so on. You know, you can um, your, your evidence seems to be exactly the same. So this is why it's called undetermination. It seems your evidence is under, underdetermined, uh, your belief. We our evidence isn't sufficient to to give us knowledge that we've got hands because it doesn't differentiate between and um, what we think of the normal case of, of having hands and the sceptical case of merely thinking you've got hands but actually being uh, in a radical skeptical scenario, like being the brain of that, hmm. so so you get a slightly different version of the argument. And as I say, most people thought that these were basically just equivalent ways of putting the same point. Um, one thing I show in the book—it's probably uh, a bit difficult to explain um, in, in just you know, in, a, in a short interview—but I argue that in fact they're, they're logically distinct. So these two arguments—they're um, they're not the same. Um, and you, you can actually show that, it's, it's a bit technical, but uh, you can show that uh, they come apart actually in both directions, that uh, you can have undetermination based skepticism without the closure-based skepticism and vice versa. And what I try and argue in the book is that this is a really significant point, because I think that the it, it's it's not just a, a small logical point, it's actually a philosophical point that um, the two forms of skepticism are both presupposing to uh, what I think sort of big ideas about epistemology which are they're sort of in the background, but which I think are um really quite dubious. And what we need to do, and this is what I'm trying to do in the book, is show that once we bring those sort of background ideas into the foreground, we recognize just how dubious they are. And then it's getting rid of those background ideas is key to resolving the skeptical problem.
1: Okay. Um, And that's where we get into Wittgenstein, uh, because you bring him in to uh, suggest that his contributions to radical skepticism and the structure of rational evaluation um, help to resolve uh, those two problems and paradoxes, including uh, something that he calls hinge commitments. So could you maybe start to tell us about where that's going to go? Yeah. Okay. so
2: here's the sort of dialectic um i say that the the skeptical problem everyone's thought that it's, it's one problem and what i say is actually it's two problems in describes and that means that what we're after is um a sort of dual solution it's what i call a, a biscopic scol- solution it's a very ugly term biscopic but the reason i choose it is that it conveys just what i want to convey which is that in a sense we've been looking at the problem through, through with with one eye closed as it were and then once we see it's a dual problem then we see that it's a it's a problem that needs a dual solution. And in particular, um, there are two responses to skepticism, which are usually thought of as competing. One that's due to Wittgenstein. Another that's due to um, a living philosopher, in fact, called John McDowell. Um, And they're both thought to be unsatisfactory. And as I say, they're, they're thought to be competing. What I try and argue is that actually when you understand them properly, what they're dealing with is they're each dealing with one part of the problem. So I think Wittgenstein is dealing with the part of the problem uh, which I said turned on the closure principle, whereas the McDowellian part is actually dealing with the other part, the part that's turning on indetermination. determination. And I think once we recognize that they, they've they targeted at different things, then we can start to see uh, well a number of things. One, how they, they fit together so that they're not competing, for example. They're actually complementary. And we also see that the... The the problems that people, the concerns people had about these views were actually misdirected because they they were they were failing to see that the, that these solutions weren't trying to deal with both aspects of the problem. So that's the sort of background for this. So okay, so so Wittgenstein. The Wittgenstein I've been fascinated by Wittgenstein for for a long time, particularly his final work, which is Publishers on Certainty. Now these are his final notebooks. Uh, they take us up to right before his death. They're, they're fascinating documents. His four notebooks. Um, he he didn't edit them himself. They're just his notes, as the notebook uh, nomenclature that this implies, um, edited by others but not by himself. Um, they're historically fascinating. You know, they uh, there's these little remarks where so he's dying. He knows he's dying. So you get these little remarks where you'll say things like, you know, I, I just can't seem to get to the, the beginning of things. I guess I never will now and things like that. So they're, they're, they're just fascinating. If you're interested in Wittgenstein, they're fascinating things to read. And by the way, if anyone's thinking of reading them, I, I encourage you, you to do so. It's very short. You can read it in a couple of hours and there are lots of little gems in there. Um, and one of the big questions that uncertainty poses is, is there something new there, uh, which is distinct from his other works, particularly his, uh, his big later work, which is philosophical investigations. And commentators like myself argue that there is. Uh, I think there's um, there's an interesting train of thought, which I think he's trying to work out in uncertainty. And I think it's a claim, quite a radical claim, about what I call the structure of of rational evaluation. What I mean by that is that um, uh, in everyday life, we, we, we rationally evaluate things relative to other things. You know, we always sort of, you know, we make rational evaluations. We evaluate, you know, we, we think of some claim. you know, someone is, is claiming that their, their car's parked over there. Well, we try and work out whether that's rational by thinking, well, what's their reasons for it? And so we're we're, we're actually evaluating one thing in terms of other things, you know, their, their memories of where they parked it or what happened. And And then – Once you start thinking about those practices, you can start to abstract away from them. You can start to think, well, what is the general structure of rational evaluation? What kinds of things count as reasons for war? And on the standard view, uh, the idea is, well, there must be some, as it were, super reasons, as it were. There's some reasons which are kind of, they're like sort of self-moving movers. They're like things which are, uh, they don't require justification from anything else, but they are kind of ultimate sources of justification. And that's a, you know, a standard move that people make uh, in epistemology. Descartes made a move of this kind, for example. Um, and one of the big challenges is to try and work out what are these sort of foundational basic forms of, of belief, of reason that we can appeal to, and which are kind of like the, the, the bedrock of our reasoning. But Wittgenstein seemed to want to turn that idea completely on its head. He does think that there are some basic things which are, as it were, the sort of they sort of ground our reasoning. But he thinks that they, they do so uh, in, in virtue of being, by their nature, irrational. So he thinks that there are these basic certainties, hinge certainties, he says, that underlie all of our rational practices. Indeed, they have to underlie our rational practices. We, we couldn't do without them. So it, what it is to be a rational person, what it is to be able to give reasons to doubt, to offer reasons for and against anything, is to have these basic certainties in the background, these hinge certainties. And, and because they have to be in play in order for rational evaluation to take place, they cannot themselves be rationally evaluated. So he thinks this kind of, he thinks it's a primitive animal certainty. We have there, these basic fundamental commitments, uh, these hinge commitments, and that they have to be in place in order for rational evaluation to take place. And, and that's what he means by hinge commitment. And I think it's this idea that he's trying to work out in uncertainty. And in particular, I think what he's trying to do is try and work out why doesn't that idea just collapse into skepticism itself? Because at face value, you might think that it just is skepticism. You know, uh, if, you know, because Wittgenstein's saying, you know, at our most basic level, our basic commitments are irrational. You know, they're not rationally grounded. They're not, they're they're not things that we know. Um, That sounds like the sort of thing the skeptic might say. But Wittgenstein wants to say, no, no, this, this isn't actually, this isn't a problem. This isn't like a, a lack uh, on our part. He wants to say, no, no, this is what it is to be a rational subject, that you, your most basic commitments are irrational, these hinge commitments. And I think what he's trying to do in uncertainty is to get us to see, to get us to recognize the role these hinge propositions play, not just how they, the role that they happen to play in our everyday practices, but the role that they have to play. He thinks they're necessary. He thinks they're there as a matter of logic, as he puts it. Um, and he thinks that once we recognise that that the skeptical problem will disappear, or at least one aspect of it. So here's how roughly how it pans out. Think about that closure principle. You know, I said it was innocuous. If you know one thing, you know something else, then you know that's something else. That sounds innocuous. It only becomes problematic when we plug in skeptical scenarios. You know, so if I know I've got hands, then I know that I'm not a brain of that, right? Because brains and vats don't have hands. But of course I can't know I'm not a brain of that, so I don't know I've got hands. But what Wittgenstein I think, is trying to get us to see is that when we plug in skeptical scenarios, we're dramatically broadening the scope of our doubt. So, what we're doing is we're going from rationally evaluating things in a localized way to suddenly we're rationally evaluating all our beliefs all at once. And it's this last move that I think Wittgenstein wants to say is simply incoherent. The very idea that you could rationally evaluate all your beliefs at once, on his view, makes no sense because all rational evaluation requires the hinge commitments be in place. So that means if you tried to rationally evaluate everything, you'd also be rationally evaluating your hinge commitments. But, of course, your hinge commitments are what enables rational evaluation to take place. So that's, you're trying to do something impossible. And I think this is the way in which the Wittgensteinian approach undermines closure-based skepticism. What it does is it shows that what looks like a paradox, what looks like something, mundane claims that are generating contradiction, in fact, there's something really quite theoretical being smuggled in there, this idea of a kind of pure rational evaluation, a rational evaluation which isn't relative to any hinge claims. He thinks that idea is simply incoherent. And that's what he's trying to disabuse of And the thought is: once we get rid of that idea, then that then that particular formulation of skeptical problem it just disappears. And this is something I've been trying to work through. I mean, the the, the goal is A, both to show that Wittgenstein gives us this response to closure-based skepticism, but also what I tried to show in the book is that this very much depends on how we interpret what he's up to. So I I, I argue that standard interpretations of of Wittgenstein on on hinge commitments, they don't give us what we want. And I try and motivate a particular kind of interpretation. But if that one goes through, then he he gives us a way of dealing with that formulation of the skeptical problem. But only that formulation. So on my reading, Wittgenstein... Is not dealing with undetermination based skepticism at all, but only the closure based skepticism. Uh, and I think for that you need the other, uh, you need the other the other part of the puzzle, which is the the McDallian view. Um, should I go on and tell you the McTaggallian view, or is this a good point to stop? And
1: well, I was going to ask you actually because you you ended that section um, by saying that um, uh, even though Wittgenstein's uh, uh, proposal, like you just said, the way you read it, uh, manages to remain consistent with uh, the closure principle, and yet you f- still find that it is somewhat intellectually unsatisfying. And so, um, is that what you mean by that—that that it's missing the underdetermination principle aspect?
2: Yeah. So the, 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 there, there, there are two things I mean by that. So, so one is yes, there's something missing because if you just think, if some people think that the Wittgensteinian line resolves a skeptical problem full stop, then you're bound to be dissatisfied because I don't think it engages on determination-based skepticism at all. And the reason for that is what Wittgenstein's saying is that when we make rational, rational evaluations can never be universal. That's what he's saying. There's no such thing as universal rational evaluation. But he's not telling us what kind of rational support we do have when we don't make universal rational evaluations. He's not telling us that at all. And yet undetermination is precisely a claim about the kind of rational support we have. So because Wittgenstein doesn't tell us anything about the nature of our reasons, he just tells us they can't be the kind of universal rational variations, because he doesn't tell us anything about the nature of our reasons, he doesn't. nothing he says has any bearing on intermination-based skepticism. So unless you've also got an answer to that other problem, then I think you're just going to think, well, you know, at the root of my rational practices are hinges. Wittgenstein says, I've got knowledge regardless, but it's kind of a mystery. Well, how do I have knowledge regardless? That's one. That's one sense. Of one source of dissatisfaction. There is this other issue, though, um, which I call epistemic vertigo. Um, so I dif- differentiate between epistemic angst and epistemic vertigo. So epistemic angst is just skepticism. That's this like real, genuine worry that how we could know anything. Vertigo is something slightly different. It's um, as the name suggests. It's kind of like a phobic reaction, and it's a phobic reaction that occurs when we as it were, we ascend, we theoretically ascend, or we sort of detach ourselves from ordinary inquiries. So if Wittgenstein's right, our ordinary practices are perfectly, of rational evaluation, are perfectly in in order as they are. They're they're localized, but that's fine. He thinks there's nothing problematic about rational inquiries for being localized. He thinks there's something problematic about them when they they cease to be localized and become universalized. Um, But when we start doing philosophy, so when we when we're in an ordinary context, we're not aware of the fact that we have these hinge commitments. They're just, as he says, they they lie apart from the route traveled by inquiry. He says, no one teaches you. So he thinks the fact you've got two hands, for example, that's kind of a hinge commitment. No one teaches you you've got hands. It's kind of in the background. People teach you what to do things with your hands. And it's in the background that it's an obvious fact that you've got hands. You know, those of us do lucky to have hands. So um, these hinge commitments, they're sort of, they're they're implicit. They're tacit. They're never made explicit in ordinary inquiries. But what happens when we start doing philosophy is that we become a, we, we we detach ourselves from ordinary context, and then we become aware of these commitments that we have and the special role they play in this detached way. And I think that kind of that gives us a, a sense of unease, a sense of sort of phobia, because we um, we become aware of our hinges, our hinge commitments, choir hinge commitments. We become aware of the fact that our most fundamental commitments, our most basic certainties aren't rationally grounded. In a way, we're not normally aware of that. Right? And I think this can cause some disquiet. I think this is a different reaction to skepticism because if if you're convinced that the response of skepticism offer offered, then there's no need to be skeptical. It's kind of like it's an unease, if you will. Um, I call it uh, vertigo because to get, get, get across this idea of a phobic reaction, to just as you know when you're at high up, You could feel a sense of danger, even though you know full well you're not in danger. I think this is kind of an epistemic situation once we've resolved the skeptical problem. Because we've taken this detached perspective on our inquiries, even once we've resolved the problem, because we've stepped back and we've ascended, as it were, we're looking at our practices in a disengaged way and noticing features of those practices that are normally hidden, such as that you know these hinge commitments are in play. And that gives us this kind of disquiet. But I think that's just a natural human response. I think that's just part of the, as a way, if you like, the human epistemic condition uh, that at some level we sort of aspire to to have universal rational evaluations. But that this is this is a, a faulty aspiration if Wittgenstein's stands right.
1: Okay, um, so I think this is where we get into the topic of epistemological disjunctivism. Uh, so, can you please explain what this line of thinking is, as well as its relation to epistemological orthodoxy, and why some consider it as a contentious position?
2: Yeah. So this is um, so. So for me, for a number of years, I've been arguing for a, defending a Wittgensteinian Hinge epistemology on the one hand, and also defending this other view, epistemological disjunctivism, which uh, until recently was regarded as um, you know, an, an insane view you know when I tell people about it they would uh, uh they, they would <laughs> profess that they thought i you know think basically they, they would be charitable and assume they'd misunderstood what I was saying, and they'd try and really <laughs> characterize it in a different way I uh, <laughs> think when I insisted that's what I was saying, they would say this can't possibly can't possibly mean that um and i it's not my view actually i i mean i I develop it in a certain way, it comes from this guy John McDowell, but he has the same problem. No one takes what he says seriously. Everyone reinterprets what he says in a different way because I think he, he can't possibly take take what he says at face value okay, so here's the view it's the idea that in in the very best cases, so we're talking about perceptual knowledge here, so like when i'm when, when everything's hunky-dory epistemically speaking you know I'm in good cognitive conditions and I get to see things in clear view and so forth, then my reasons can be. Uh, for believing what I do can be both factive and reflectively accessible. And what I mean by that is factive means that your reasons entail the things that they're reasons for. So the example that myself and John McDowell give is you could, in, in the good case where everything's going fine, the reason can be something like, I see that, I see that there's a cup on the table. Seeing that such and such is the case actually entails that such and such is the case. You can't see that such and such is the case unless it actually is the case. So seeing that P, or whatever, you, is different from seeming to see that P. You, know, you can seem to see something and not see it. But if you see that something is the case, then you, it really must be the case. So it's factive. It entails the relevant fact. And people don't have a problem with factive reasons. But they say, look, if you've got factive reasons, those reasons can't then be reflectively accessible to you. You can't be the sort of thing just by reflection. You can realize those are your reasons. So usually people jump one way or the other. They say, well, if your knowledge is supported by reasons, uh, if it's supported by factive reasons, then those reasons aren't accessible to you. They must be somehow opaque to you. Or your knowledge is supported by reasons, but then your reasons, uh, which are reflectively accessible to you, but then they can't be factive. Uh, And that's the claim. You can't have both. You can either have factive reasons, but they're not accessible to you. They're kind of opaque to you. Or you can have reasons that really are accessible to you, that are transparent to you, are available to you, but then they can't be factored. And the reason why people say that is precisely because of skeptical scenarios. Uh, I mean, after all, when you're a brain in a vat, uh, it seems to you as if you see the P, even though you don't see the P, right? I mean, if you ask your brain in a vat why they believe there's a cup on the table, they might well say, well, because I can see there's a, see there's a cup on the table. They, they can offer the fact of reason. But of course, when the brain of ad offers a fact of reason, uh, they, they're wrong because they, there is no cup on the table. They merely seem to see there's a cup on the table. So epistemological disjunctivism is making a claim that most people think is just absurd, it's, that you can have the reasons that are, are genuinely available to you can nonetheless be factored, at least in the, in the right kind of condition. And this is a view I've been trying to make sense of elsewhere. I, following McDowell, I actually think this is the... Um, Far from being a contentious view, as it was and still is to some degree, I think it's actually our natural way of thinking about reasons. I mean, I think ordinarily when we talk to each other about reasons, we, you know, if if I ask you, if you're on the phone and, you know, I ask you why so and so is in work today, why you think that so and so is in work today, maybe I'm skeptical because, uh, you know, I think they take a lot of time off and I'm not around. And you might respond by saying, well, no, I know he's here. I can see that he's here. And it would be odd if you said, well, it seems to me as if he's here. Because, well, why would, you, why, would you, why would you hedge it by saying it seems to you? I mean, if, if the person's right in front of you, uh, it would, that would be very strange. It would be like you were suggesting there's some room for doubt. So I think it's our natural way of talking to scientific reasons. And one thing I've tried to argue elsewhere is that a lot of the reasons why people think that we can't endorse the epistemological disjunctivism are actually really bad reasons. And, and hence, that it's a view that's completely open to us. Now, how this is relevant to the um, the skeptical problem, and in particular how it's relevant to undetermination-based skepticism, is like this. Um, Undetermination-based skepticism turns on this idea of what I call the insularity of reasons. It's the thought that even in the very best case, our reasons, so even in the very best conditions we could be in, the reasons we have for our beliefs are always compatible with our beliefs being radically false. And this is a, like, the, I mean, that, that idea is driving undetermination-based skepticism. It's lurking in the background. But it's only if you have that idea in the background that you get a undetermination-based skepticism. But, of course, if epistemological disjunctivism is, is true, then that, uh, that, that idea in the background is, is false. Because the whole point of epistemological disjunctivism is, well, if you really are in good conditions, then your reasons for believing something can be factored. They can be the kinds of reasons that uh, you would only have if your beliefs were mostly true. So I claim that epistemological disjunctivism gives us the other, the other part of the puzzle. Um, I mean, here's the way to think about it. Wittgenstein's making a claim about the structure of rational evaluation. He's saying there can't be universal rational evaluation, but he's not telling us what the nature of our rational support is. Epistemological disjunctivism, in contrast, is not making a claim about the structure of rational evaluation. It doesn't say anything about that at all. It's making a claim about what kinds of rational support we can have. And it's saying sometimes our rational support can be really strong. It can be factored in fact. And the thought is when you put the two claims together, you get a response to both, both sides of the skeptical problem. The Wittgensteinian line deals with the, um, the closure-based problem because now it says, look, closure is problematic precisely in those cases where we're trying to make universal rational evaluations. We're trying to rationally evaluate all our beliefs all at once. But that's impossible. We're not supposed to do that. So we get a response to that, a principled response to that. Whereas this on the other hand, it deals with a determination-based skepticism to say, look, that, this problem presupposes that our reasons, even the best case, um, are always compatible with widespread falsity in our beliefs, and this is something we should reject. The thought is both sides of the skeptical problem, they're trading on these contentious theoretical claims which we should reject. And once we've rejected them, then we get a response to both, uh, both parts of the puzzle. Moreover, we get a response to both parts of the puzzle that That fit nearly together because the way I'm characterizing them, these two responses, they're not in competition. They're, they're mutually supportive. You know, it's easier to live with the idea, uh, that rational evaluation is essentially local if you think that sometimes our rational support is factive. And it's easier to live with the idea that sometimes our rational support is factive if rational evaluations are essentially local, you know, because you, you're building a kind of modesty into the view already. So what, that's what I try and argue. I think when you, when you put these things together, you get, um, you get a, a solution to the skeptical problem. You get a, a, a cure, as I put it, for epistemic angst. The real trick is to see that what looked like one problem was really two problems. Two formulated skeptical arguments that are distinct, they trade on d- distinct claims, and then that we have two anti-skeptical solutions, which each of them uh, are neutralizing one of these distinct claims, but which when put together is mutually supportive and, um, you know, they give us this uh, biscopic, this combined dual response to the sceptical problem
1: Okay but I believe that you end by saying that even though you've found a cure as you put it to these two sides of the problem um, and despite the fact that you acknowledge that people do seem to be hardwired to be anti-sceptics you say that you feel like you're still left with some of that epistemic vertigo, is that right? That's right. Yeah. As I say, I think this is just
2: the human epistemic condition that, you know, if basically, the, the, the people who never engage with skepticism, they're, they're, there is no skeptical problem for them. Their practices are fine. There, there's no challenge to their, those practices. But, but when we start doing philosophy, when we start doing epistemology, we step outside of those practices and then we, we become aware of them in a different way. So this is the thing I was saying about you know in our everyday lives we're not aware of the role that hinge propositions hinge commitments play you know they we don't we're not aware that there are these basic claims that are groundless and that they're basically underpinning our rational practices that they, they you know as i say Wittgenstein says they lie apart from the route travelled by inquiry we just don't question these things they're just always in the background but once we step back and start to reflect on our practices from this detached perspective, then we see that there are these hinge claims there and that they're playing this hinge role. And I think that is is—it's by its nature unsettling. Uh, We we sort of, um, you know, it's like when, uh, like with a performance, and uh, if you can see what's happening backstage, it kind of ruins the performance somehow. It's like we're seeing a, a part of what's going on that's normally hidden, and in becoming aware of it, it gives us a kind of, it makes us feel a sort of anxiety, a kind of discomfort about the the nature of our, our rational practices. Um, but as I say, this isn't a reason for skepticism. I think I think this kind of uh, anxiety is just a natural anxiety. It's just that we have a tendency to desire somehow a, 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 a reasons from this purely detached and universal perspective. But if Lichtenstein right, there's no reasons of that kind. I mean, not only are they not available. It's not that they're not available, it's just that it's a mistake to even aspire to them. You know, that, the, the, the very notion is incoherent. There is no such thing as, as a rational perspective which is universal like that. Um, and, I, and I think that's a deep insight that Wittgenstein has. It, it's an insight, uh, various commentators have said that it's an insight that he shares with, um, with Heidegger, for example. Um, I mean, there's a very, very, the American philosopher Stanley Cavell. He says a very famous passage. He says that what, what Wittgenstein and Heidegger have in common is this idea that the most our most basic relationship to the world is not one of knowing. Uh, and I think that's right. It's uh, you know our, our most basic commitments are not are not are not our knowings. There there are these hinge commitments. And and the, the insight that Wittgenstein has is to realize that this isn't. This isn't to say there's something problematic about our knowledge. We do know lots of things about the world around us. It's just that it's in the nature of what it is to know things about the world around us that you have these basic commitments that aren't themselves knowledge. Hmm.
1: So if I may ask, if we can turn the conversation more towards the central overarching theme of this podcast and its questioning of the claims of various religions, I want to ask you if you think that any of the epistemological proposals that we've been discussing could be helpful at all in thinking about the existence of the supernatural?
2: So I have a, a, a particularly, I think they are, I think it does have an application, particularly the Wittgensteinian uh, material. Um, I have a particular way of reading um, uncertainty. Um, I think the big, so the, the standard line is the big influence for Wittgenstein was um, conversations he had with uh, an ex-student of his, Norman Malcolm, and via that, uh, an, a, an Oxford philosopher, G. Moore. But I think actually the impetus for a lot of these notes is a different source altogether. I think it's um, the Catholic thinker, John Henry Newman. So John Henry Newman was um, a very influential figure of his day. He had been Anglican, uh, and then he'd become an apostate. He'd moved across to Catholicism, ended up being Cardinal Newman. And in fact, he's, he's in the process of being beautified. So he'll soon be a saint. Um, Newman was this very interesting figure. Um, an intellectual figure, and he, he had an, an intriguing argument for the rationality of religious belief. Um, and you'll, you'll see, as soon as I present it, you'll see that the overlap with, with Wittgenstein's work. Um, he claimed that um, the that people object to religious belief because, at its root, it has these basic irrational commitments. And he he says that's true. Religious belief does, at its, at its root, have these basic irrational commitments. He says, but that can't be a problem specific to religious belief because all belief, he claims. Has its root rational commitments, and he talks about these basic certainties that permeate all all religious conviction all, all rational conviction, including religious conviction. I think Wittgenstein was very much uh, intrigued by this line of argument, but whereas Newman wanted to apply this as a way of defending religious belief, what Wittgenstein was interested in, I think was just sort of broaden it out he's like take let's take the not you know put put aside the claim about religious belief for a moment, but now consider this more general claim. What is it for most of our rational beliefs to presuppose a rational commitment? <coughs> Excuse me. And, um, and that's what he's trying to work through in uncertainty. But I think the reason he's trying to work it through is because of this religious context. Um, you know, We have a lot of reason to think that, that Wittgenstein probably converts to Catholicism, maybe on his deathbed, we don't know. But I think he's trying to work through, he's an intellectual, he's trying to work through in his own mind how these ideas might play out. How could it be that there are these irrational commitments, and yet how can they be compatible with being a rational person who only believes things in a rational way? And I think that's what he's trying to work through. So this isn't to say that, um, that if you buy the Wittgensteinian line, then you therefore get a defense of the rationality of religious belief or anything like that. It's rather to say, I think, um, that there are some commonalities here. Um, if you take seriously the idea that there are these hinge commitments, well, then you might want to take seriously the idea that there could be, you know, there could be subjects who have very different hinge commitments to to others. You know, so so, you you can imagine someone raised in a a secular, non-religious way, and for them, there are no religious hinge commitments in play, but someone who was raised from a religious background, some of the basic certainties that are in play in the background might well be religious certainties. And I think this would explain an awful lot about how different, you know, why some debates between religious believers and non-religious believers, why they can sometimes feel so intractable because it seems that the conflict here isn't just simply a conflict of belief. It's a conflict of hinges, right? So it's a much more fundamental conflict. And, of course, the thing about hinges for Wittgenstein is that they're not responsive to reasons in the way beliefs are. I mean, that's the thing. They're they're, they're part of the, the, the backdrop against which we reason. And and if that's right, then you know debates between the believer and the non-believer, if we if we construe them as sort of head-on, so think about like the new atheism movement, and you had these debates between Hitchens and so forth on the one side, and and the defenders of religious belief on the other, and they were sort of going head to head. But if you think about that, if you think that what's going on here is a clash of hinge commitments, then that that's kind of a bit of a mistake, actually. They're unlikely to make any progress of, con- to, of convincing each other if that's the way they they approach it, because. In effect, they're trying to they're trying to convince people to change their hinge commitments, and you're not going to do that head on. That doesn't mean you can't change people's hinges. I think you can, but you have to do it in a, in, as it were, a kind of side on way. I mean, I think you have to change their belief system as a whole. You have to find areas of commonalities. You have to have, find areas of shared belief, and then you have to use that as a basis to to to, to work using that as a basis to work on gradually on the things that you disagree about. So I think um yeah, I think there is a lot of uh, a lot of a, a lot a great deal of ramifications of uh, of the Wittgensteinian account of hinge of commitments and how it plays out in understanding fundamental differences of belief and fundamental disagreements as well that we might have, particularly when they involve religious disagreements.
1: Yeah, I think that's very helpful. Uh that makes a lot of sense from my experience as well. Um Interesting. Well, Duncan, I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. It's been really enlightening. Um, but before we go, can you tell us what you're currently working on? Well, well, thanks very
2: much for having me. It's been great to talk about the book, and I, I hope it's made sense. Uh, it's, I, I recognize it's quite abstract uh, material, so I, hopefully the listeners will, will get a sense of what, what I'm up to. Um, what am I up to next? In fact, one of the things I'm up to is um, – Trying to think through some of the sort of societal ramifications of of, of skepticism and hinge commitments and things like that. So, uh, I mean, I'm working on a on a MOOC at the moment. That's a massive open online course, uh, if it, which will hopefully will come online the next year or so on skepticism, trying to explain some of these skeptical ideas and how they play out in societal debates. So, I'm thinking, you know, like how how can skepticism be on the one hand a healthy thing, you know, when skepticism of a kind that drives scientific inquiry, for example. But yeah, on the other hand, it can also, when it becomes quite extreme, it can have pernicious social consequences. So, you know, you think about uh, the, the current political climate where people talk about, you know, post-fact politics and, uh, and such like, you know, it seems skepticism of a more extreme variety can lead to a lack of concern for the truth. And that can, that can be problematic from the perspective of, of public discourse. So I'm trying to work that through. That's more a sort of applied epistemology, and hopefully I'm, I'm trying to put a course together, which uh, uh, I would hope will be of interest to to, to many people. And in fact, there's a, a book that's going to go with it. I, Oxford University Press have a series called the The Very Short Introduction yes. To series. Yes, lots of different topics. I'm going to do the one on skepticism. So hope, the idea is that's going to go hand in hand with the MOOC. So that's the. That's the next
1: main thing I'm working on. That sounds great. Uh, If you're at all interested or have the time, uh, we'd love to have you back to talk about that. Um, I'll tell you that this was a a very new area of uh, study for me, and it did come clear. So thank you very much for that. I think I hope for most of our listeners it will be very clear for them as well. So um, thanks again for coming on. I really enjoyed it, and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again sometime. That's great. Thanks
0: very much. I want to thank you for listening to the podcast today. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Duncan Pritchard about his book, Epistemic Angst, Radical Skepticism, and the Groundlessness of Our Believing. You can find out more about the work Duncan is doing by Googling Duncan Pritchard at the University of California in Irvine. Did you enjoy this podcast? Please write us a review on iTunes, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. As a not-for-profit organization, all of the buzz that you can help us generate goes a long way to supporting this work. Also, be sure to like the New Books and Secularism channel on Facebook and Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. You can also find me on Twitter at Carrie Linland, that's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D, where I generally post about science fiction and science and tech news. Did you find this book fascinating? Let me know. I'd love to hear what you think. Goodbye! Until my next conversation about new books in secularism.